A number of people by now, wrote Wendell Berry, have told me that I could greatly improve things by buying a computer. My answer is that I am not going to do it. This is Dr. Jim Tonkowitz, your host for these After Dinner Scholar podcasts, uh, sitting in front of a computer at Wyoming Catholic College. As the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought considered the topic, the ancient and modern challenges of technology this past June, we thought we'd end not only with Martin Heidegger, but with agrarian author Wendell Berry. We read two of his essays, Why I Am Not Going to Buy a Computer, along with the letters to the editor and Barry's responses, and the second, The Use of Energy, where he, like Heidegger, worries that modern technology turns all things, including humans and human things, into standing reserve. Dr. Daniel Shields gave the Wyoming School these introductory remarks. Brief word about Wendell Berry. I was somewhat hesitant initially to um, uh, suggest him as a reading, um, in part because um, I think he's half-wedded to a kind of um, uh, leftist political um, view that I'm uh, finding, uh, that I don't like. Um, but on the other hand, he's not easy to classify in terms of whether he's conservative or, or liberal. To, um, he is in some sense deeply conservative because he's interested in preserving or conserving um, family and community. And he sees the, the progress of modern life as, as going in a direction that is, that is disintegrating family and community. And um, in another essay that he talks about, he sees everything as, as connected, that if you um, uh, separate man from the land, you end up separating man from his body, and then you separate the man from his wife and the parents from their children, and then the man from his community, and you, you just fragment everything. And he wants to, to, to um, conserve and hold things together um, and integrate them. Um, he himself is, is a writer, a well-known writer. Um, he's still alive, um, but uh, I don't think very active anymore. Um, but he uh, lives in Kentucky. He has a farm. Um, and uh, as he tells us in this essay, he farms with animals rather than with tractors. Um, so, um, okay. Also, uh, to avoid being misunderstood, in part because this came up yesterday, um, I want to state how valuable I think modern science is. Um, it teaches us a great deal of truth, not just correct things to say, but it reveals truth about the natural world um, that we would otherwise be incapable of knowing. Um, as a lover of truth and a lover of nature, I cannot be indifferent to modern science and the truths about the things I love that it reveals to me. Um, and science is an essential part of a liberal education, and I've devoted uh, a number of years of my own studies to it, despite the fact that my field is philosophy and not science. Um, there are many reasons for doing so, and one of them is just simply because I delight in modern science. I love it. It's enjoyable. but from its beginnings, 
modern science has been wedded to certain problematic philosophical views and to a project of limitless technological progress that is highly problematic. Although individual scientists have freed themselves from the baggage, um, from this, this baggage I'm talking about, the scientific community has never yet been uh, succeeded in doing so, and it's unclear whether it possibly could succeed in freeing itself from that baggage. Okay, let me explain. Um, all technology, of course, serves a purpose, right? And a purpose is a kind of final cause. Right? Heidegger was talking about final causality, right? Um, Bacon, Descartes, who were philosophers, philosophers invented science, by the way. Um, they, we, they did it in the uh, 17th century. Um, Bacon and Descartes and the modern project, they hold that all purposes are imposed. Right? They're primarily imposed by human beings. Right? Maybe, depending on who you're talking to, they might say that some animals have some limited ability to impose purposes on things. I don't know, maybe the, um, uh, the monkey imposes a purpose on the stick when he uses it to you know, get the ants out of the, um, out of the log or something like that. Um, maybe if you believe in him, you, God also imposes purposes on things, but how are we to know the purposes of God? Um, especially if there's a waning faith in divine revelation. So primarily, according to the modern project, purposes are human things. They're things that human beings impose on the world. Right? Um, now, um, how do we do that? Well, primarily, we fulfill our purposes by technology. Right? And the modern project, the modern scientific project from the beginning, and the, explicitly so in the mouths of Bacon and Descartes, who launched this modern scientific project, they say, we're going to gain knowledge of the world so that we can have new technology, so that we can impose our purposes on the world and make ourselves, quote unquote, the masters and possessors of nature, right? Which is different than tilling the earth and subduing it. Um, so with this, uh, this modern technological products that modern science was going to make available, we would um, be able to very um, efficiently impose whatever purposes we wanted on natural things, and then life would become pleasant, convenient, relatively painless, and free from toil. We would no longer need to earn our bread by the sweat of our brows. That was there explicitly at the very beginning of the scientific revolution. Now, the Baconian project, uh, the Cartesian project as well, explicitly saw itself as overthrowing an older Aristotelian tradition. According to Aristotle, not all purposes are imposed. Nature itself has purposes of its own within itself. For example, a tree strives to grow and reproduce itself. This purpose is not imposed on it, nor does the tree consciously desire this purpose. It does not choose to pursue this purpose. It has no awareness at all. It's a tree. 
And nevertheless, it has this purpose within itself, and it's striving to achieve this purpose. It spontaneously tends in the direction of fulfilling those purposes. Now, Aquinas built on this idea of Aristotle's by saying that God writes the, their purposes into natural things when he creates them. God does not impose them on natural things the way we impose the, the, the purpose of swift transportation on metal and glass and rubber and petroleum when we call it a car. Right, That purpose is not there in the thing. It's just something that we decide um, to do with it. And if I want the car instead to be a piece of artwork on my lawn or to be a planter, I don't violate the nature of the car because the car has no purposes of its own. They're all imposed. And I can impose whatever purposes I want on it. Um, as long as it succeeds in fulfilling those purposes. Hence, the technology has to be well-constructed. Right? That's where the modern science and engineering comes in. Okay, But that's not how God relates to uh, natural things, according to Aquinas. He's not just um, externally imposing purposes on things. Rather, he creates them so that they themselves have the purposes within them. Right? It's just their nature to strive to achieve those purposes. Um, and then if that's true, even without revelation or in addition to divine revelation, we can know the purposes of God for things to a certain extent because we can observe the natural world and see what purposes are within the natures of things. What purposes are they striving to achieve? And then we know the purpose of the tree, and by knowing that, we know God's purpose for the tree, at least to a certain extent, because its purpose is the one God gave it. Okay, now Aristotle and Aquinas hold that the purposes of the various natural things form a kind of grand system, a system of purposes, so that the purpose of the tree and the purpose of um, uh, the animal somehow interrelate to one another. They're not necessarily just at odds with each other. There may, <clears throat> they may be at odds in a certain extent, in a limited way, but then they fit into a grander picture, right? The salmon is trying to swim up river to spawn. The bear is trying to get um, some food, right? And their immediate purposes are kind of at odds with each other. We say if the bear succeeds in eating the salmon, is actually promoting the greater purposes of nature, right? Um, that's how they saw things. Now, both of them also held that human morality is defined by respect for this system of purposes. Right? What is right for a human being to do is what fulfills the purposes that are built into human nature, and in doing so, would correspond with and, and, and uh, harmonize with the purposes of other things in the natural world because it's all one vast teleological system. Okay, now the modern rejection of such intrinsic purposes has led to an overthrow of the whole concept of natural law as a, as a, a moral system that, that Aquinas would talk about, um, and it's led to the overthrow of traditional morality. Let me give just a brief example to illustrate how this works. 
If there are any natural purposes at all, then clearly reproduction is a purpose of sexual intercourse. That implies that people should not have sex until they are ready to commit to each other, settle down, and raise kids. That would rule out things like divorce, premarital sex, adultery, contraception, homosexual intercourse, etc. But if there are no purposes built into natural things, then there are no purposes built into our bodies. We can do whatever we want sexually as long as it's between consenting adults and as long as we have the technology to avoid or mitigate the undesirable consequences of the actions we choose to engage in. The modern project thus issues limits. Technology is no longer a way of tilling the soil and developing the potentialities of God's creation by respecting its intrinsic purposes, but a way of manipulating nature as a store of raw materials or standing reserve, where we, the efficient cause, can impose whatever purposes we want on it as long as we've got enough standing reserve to do so and the technology to achieve our goals. Okay, so this is, in my mind, this, um, this sort of thing that happens with Bacon and Descartes and the scientific revolution is one of the most important things that has happened in the history of mankind. Um, and it leads us to where we are now. That's all background. I don't think Wendell Berry has ever read Aristotle or thinks at all about him, but when I read him, I think about Aristotle and I think about Aquinas because, and he even does use the word natural law in one of our readings, right? Berry is trying to envision a way of life that's more in line with the purposes that are within nature rather than just you know, kind of treating it as a standing reserve and then imposing whatever kind of purposes we want on it. Okay, in the, the first article, The Use of Energy, um, that's in the reading packet, I think Barry um, nicely illustrates in a, in a more readable way um, what Heidegger is talking about with standing reserve, right, and that whole notion of enframing. Um, Barry points out that there's no way of getting away from technology and for getting away from machines um, and getting away from living organisms as being related to machines. That's how it's been for the whole history of mankind. But he nevertheless still thinks there's something different about modern technology from more older forms of technology. Um, and the way he seems to talk about it is as if the, there's the balance between the living aspects of technology and the mechanical aspects of technology have been overthrown. Um, and the machine has started to kind of become a thing unto itself um, and something that in some way controls us rather than just being controlled by us. Um, but he also connects it to a difference between um, models of production or forms of economy and, and lifestyle. And the classical way of farming, and farming is just a way to illustrate this, a particularly important way to illustrate this, but by no means the only um, one, right? But mo uh, traditional farming, like nature, was cyclical, right? One thing lives by eating something else 
but it eventually is either eaten by something else or dies in composts and then becomes food for something else. And the, the rain comes down, it flows, it waters the, the crops, eventually it ends up in the sea, it evaporates, it falls down again. Everything in nature works in this kind of cyclical way, which in a, as, as Barry puts it, in a way is infinite because it can just kind of keep on going. At least it's quasi-infinite, right? Because it, there's no obvious beginning and end. It can kind of just keep doing the same thing by going around and around. Um, and in traditional farming, uh, as Barry describes it, everything that is, ex that, that is utilized ends up back in the soil at some point, right? So that um, you don't have to just keep on pouring more fertilizer or pharmaceuticals on it, right? Because the farm itself provides its own um, fertilizer um, in the form of manure or compost, right? Um, but he says that the modern um, technology and modern ways of production are linear rather than cyclical, right? Um, so things, resources are extracted, right? And, and may be stored for a while as, as a kind of standing reserve. But then when they're utilized, they're consumed. And what comes out are waste products that are now unusable and not returned, right? So it's a, it's more of a, um, uh, it's more like mining is the way he's thinking about it. You're extracting something and you're making no return. Um, so in doing so, the the kind of system of purposes in nature um, are not respected, but rather we impose certain purposes on things, um, and that ends up not being sustainable, to use a kind of a um, popular word these days. Um, okay, now in the second, there, there's a lot more to talk about in that first essay and, and hopefully we can talk about it. But in the second essay, uh, he, it's actually a, a series of essays. He wrote in uh, a very short piece and then in 1987 in a, in a periodical titled, Why I Won't Buy a Computer. Um, and in it, he explains that he's a writer and as a writer and a professor of English, everybody he meets is telling him he needs to buy a computer. So why? I, I don't want a computer. I don't think I need one. Why not? Because he's satisfied with his writing process, right? Okay? Um, it's, uh, uh, as he describes it, he writes with a pen and paper or pencil and paper, often out in the woods. And then he, his wife types them up and edits them as she types them up and they talk about it and it makes a great deal of improvement and it becomes a kind of shared endeavor. It's not just he who is writing, it's he and his wife who are writing together, right? And he treasures that relationship um, and uh, he enjoys the process, right? But people tell him he needs a computer. Why? Because you can write better and faster if you have a computer. He says he doesn't want to acquire a computer because it would displace his wife. It would somehow diminish his relationship and his shared work, his, his community with his wife. Um, so 
he also he doesn't think he needs it and he sees that he would lose something if he got the computer he lays out several other principles they're kind of provisional standards for um, whether or not to adopt a new piece of technology that becomes available right somebody says oh look there's this new product why don't you buy it he says well I'm not going to buy a product just because it's new and just because other people are buying it. I will ask myself a question. It, will my life be better if I get this new technology? And he says, this is on page 171 and 172. This is in the, um, the handout version. He says, the new tool should be cheaper than the one it replaces. It should be at least as small in scale as the one it replaces. It should do work that is clearly and demonstrably better than the one it replaces. It should use less energy than the one it replaces. If possible, it should use some form of solar energy, such as that of the body. All living organisms are solar powered, right? Because the, the plants take the energy from the sun, and then the animals eat the plants, and then we eat the plants and the animals, so we're all solar powered, right? Okay. Um, it should be repairable by a person of ordinary intelligence, provided that he or she has the necessary tools. Right? Um, I used to do my own automobile maintenance. Um, and there's um, many reasons that I, I, I don't do very much of that anymore. Right? But I was, did not like the idea that these modern cars were not repairable. I, I could not fix them if they broke. It was very disturbing to me. Um, the, the car that I mostly learned to drive on was a, was a Mazda pickup truck, a stick shift from the, from the 80s. And you open up the hood, you could see the ground. You open up the hood, you're looking at the grass. Right? There's, a, there's an engine in the center surrounded by lots of empty space. Right? To, if I'm going to drive a car, I want it to look like that. Okay. He says, it should be purchasable and repairable as near to home as possible. It should come from a small privately owned shop or store that will take it back for maintenance and repair. And it should not replace or disrupt anything good that already exists. And this includes family and community relationships, right? And that's the most important one to him, right? So when he wrote this short little piece in a periodical, um, it generated a number of letters to the editor. A lot of people seemingly were kind of upset um, by the piece, um, and they complain that he some sort of, um, you know, trying to keep his hands clean from any contamination by the uh, uh, energy industry, and that he was treating his wife as a slave, right? As some, as so, as some, some sort of household servant, uh, you know, as if it was. Uh, you know, like, here, take these and type them up for me, right? Um, they completely missed, in a sense, the, the beauty that he was describing of his collaboration with his wife, that this, this, she wasn't just some <clears throat> computer that happened to need to eat food rather than be plugged into an electrical outlet, but there was a human relationship there, something that they both valued. Um, so he responded to this piece, um, with a, just a very short thing. Um, and then later, as he thinks about it, he wrote a, more, a longer essay, this, this one called Feminism, the Body and the Machine that starts on page 178. Um, and there um, he says, oh, one thing that I, I, I meant to mention, um, 
Barry was wrote that piece in the 80s, Why He Won't Buy a Computer. Um, there's, I don't think he could foresee exactly what the computer would do to the writing process. Um, it certainly has been very beneficial in many ways. I am so glad that when I wrote my dissertation, I did not have to type it up on a typewriter. Um, I, I am grateful for that. Like, I truly am. Um, but on the other hand, I have to, when I write on a computer, I do constantly have to act, um, expend a certain amount of my mental energy to resist the ever-present temptation and pull to check my email, to check my favorite blogs, to look at the news, and so on and so forth, right? Because it's all right there and it calls me constantly and it takes some energy to hold it at bay, right? Now, not everyone's gonna feel that way. Um, okay, <laughs> but it, th this, is, this is common enough that there's actually a tool out there, it's a trendy thing and, and you have to have money to, to afford it, right? But there's a tool out there called the free write and it's a little digital com uh, computer that has an e-ink screen and it has no internet connection. Well, sort of it does. But all it can do is upload your file uh, to the cloud or download it. You cannot get on the internet. You cannot check your email. You can't get on social media. And it's marketed as a way to, um, uh, for writers to avoid the distractions that constantly interrupt the writing process right you can take this thing with you to the coffee shop or out into the woods and you can write your your um you know your essay or your uh, your poem or your novel or what have you without the distractions without that call that's saying check your email yes, right? you spell yes. As, as at least as i understand it right but then the idea is once you're done with it right so this this is how far we are from wendell berry right the idea is you well you don't just take your pencil and paper out into the woods because then you would have to type it all out later and you don't have wife to do so for you. Um, so instead, this thing will upload what you wrote to the cloud so it's right there on the computer when you need it to be on the computer before you send it to your publisher. Come, coming to that second essay, Feminism, the Body, and the Machine, right? There, he first, um, defends the centrality of marriage, child rearing, and homemaking for both man and woman. He says, we have a tendency to, to downplay this and th to think that the more important part of our life is our career that we pursue outside the home. But he says that there's nothing more noble and important that a person can do than to um, raise his children and make his home and live out his marriage. And that's not just true for the woman, that's true for the man. It says, but the technological progress of the modern age makes fewer and fewer of us spend our time in the home, right? And technological progress, he talks about this on page 185, he starts, starts talking about there. Um, the various reductions I have been describing, right, where we where we end up basically becoming a, 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 a cog in a corporate machine, 
Right? The various reductions I have been describing are fairly directly the results of the ongoing revolution of applied science known as technological progress. Right? So the, this revolution has provided the means by which both the productive and the consumptive capacities of people can be detached from household and community and made to serve other people's purely economic ends. It has provided as well a glamour of newness, ease, and affluence that made it seductive even to those who suffered most from it. In its more recent history especially, this revolution has been successful in putting unheard of quantities of consumer goods and services within the reach of ordinary people. But the technical means of this popular affluence has at the same time made possible the gathering of the real property and the real power of the country into fewer and fewer hands. He goes on to say that there's, um, uh, there's a tendency for people to kind of stout statistics, quantitative measures to say, look at how much better our lives are now than they were in the past, right? In the past, uh, we, our lives were full of drudgery. We had to work hard by the sweat of our brows and people died young and there wasn't enough food. But now there, the uh, food is plentiful. Everybody has uh, so many more things than they had before. People live longer. Life is better, right? Um, and they... Uh, tout it all in terms of quantity. But Wendell Berry says that we need to think not just about quantity, but about quality. And most of us have noticed in the course of our lives that for many, many things, quality has deteriorated over time. Um, I have a tendency to want to acquire um, uh, older machines. I don't want the newer machines, in part because I expect the newer machines to break more quickly as being made out of cheaper materials than the older machines. Um, my my, uh, my in-laws, they were still using in the 2010s the stove that they had from the 50s. No stove that I buy now will still be working 70 years later. It probably won't even be working 30 years later. Right? Um, so the quality of things tends to decrease and the quantity tends to increase. Right? That seems to be the logic of this modern project. He points out also that people have said thing, that things like the TV were, go, were gonna be a great tool for education. And then in more recent uh, memory, uh, that everybody has said, oh, we need to get computers into the public schools because if we just get more computers in there, they'll be able to learn better. Um, this is just this great tool. It's like uh, the, the biggest library in the world is on this thing, right? Um, it, it, this is gonna be wonderful. But we all know that it has in fact harmed education and made uh, uh, young kids have less attention, less ability to think, less ability to read carefully, less ability to discuss with one another. Um, it hasn't delivered what it promised to deliver. Okay, so Wendell Berry thinks that um, we ought to, um, he mentions also that we ought to involve the body in our work and that uh, um, and, he probably could not foresee to uh, what extent this digital technology has, has pushed forward the kind of disembodiment that he is very much concerned with. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to come to Wyoming Catholic College um, and teach here is because I felt a kind of lack of embodiment. Um, too much time in front of a computer, and I wanted to 
and, and if I'm not in front of the computer, I'm just in, was in suburbia. Uh, I wanted to be more in touch with the real, the bodily real. Um, and so why I'm in Catholic college has been a great blessing for me in that regards. Um, now, Barry um, kind of ends his essay by saying, we have to ask ourselves a question when it comes to any given piece of technology. And the question, um, let's see here. Uh, so the question doesn't have just a single answer as it's often been um, uh, presumed to have. Right? You say, should I adopt this piece of technology? Right? So it's if you're if your your goals are to fit in with the Joneses, to have an easy life that doesn't require a lot of thought and a lot of effort, then of course there's only one answer. Yes, adopt the new technology. Um, but if your goals are the well-being of your family and your community and your own spiritual health um, and your relationship to God, the question of whether to adopt a given piece of technology has more than one answer. It could be no, not just yes. And perhaps I should say it has more than two answers. It's not just yes or no, it's maybe partially or adopt this piece of modern technology um, and partially not adopt it. And he says that often these questions don't have easy answers. Um, sometimes they do. For him, at least, the question of whether or not to buy a computer has an easy answer. No, I don't need it. Right? But it's not that easy for me. I certainly have a computer and use one quite a bit. Um, but I did decide not to have a smartphone. Right? I'm not sure that that's fully easy, but that's something that I could do and I am uh, happy to have done. Um, but just so, as Wendell Berry doesn't see how he can do without a computer, there's all sorts of pieces of technology that I don't see how I could do without, even though I would like to do without. Because although we can't be technological fatalists that say, if we can do it, we must do it. If my society is adopting this technology, I must adopt this technology. Right? We have to uh, exercise a kind of responsibility and not give in to that fatalism. But on the other hand, we don't have perfect freedom here. The decisions that other people have made and that our society has made constrain us a great deal in terms of what we can and can't do without. Um, and as a small example of that, when I was in graduate school, my, my roommate um, had decided that he was gonna live without a cell phone. He was happier without a cell phone. Um, life, he thought his life was better without one. I had one. Um, but he did not, and he um, had a landline in our apartment. It was already a little bit passe at that time to have a landline, um, but not too outrageous. He needed a job, and he sent his resume out, and he got an interview, and he went to this interview, and it went very, very well. And then at the end of the interview, the man who was interviewing him asked, okay, you didn't put your cell phone number on your resume. Can you give me your cell phone number? I said, I don't have a cell phone. And the guy laughed him out of his office and that was the end of that job prospect. He realized at that point he had to go out and buy a cell phone, even though he did not want one. Right? We don't have total freedom 
in terms of technology. It constrains us. That bothers me deeply, but it's a reality. And we have to exercise a great deal of creativity and responsibility in thinking about what technologies we're going to um, adopt and under what conditions. I think there's two questions to ask. One is, how different are the modern and the pre-modern approaches to technology? Heidegger and, and Barry certainly think that they are very different, but we had some, a pretty intelligent question here about um, the, the standing reserve of water for irrigation in the ancient world, right? So how different are modern and pre-modern approaches to technology and to nature? And then the, the second question is, what, if anything, ought we to do and can we do about adopting or not adopting technologies? Um, is it just okay? Should we just go along with the, the direction that our society is going? Or can we do something about it and ought we to do something about it to put the brakes on or to live in the alternatively in regards to technology? Um, so let's talk about those, those questions. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these lectures from the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought. We live in what used to be called the computer age, and that will not change. Technologies pervade our home lives, work lives, physical lives, and even spiritual lives. We can't avoid them, but we can become thoughtful and thus prudent as individuals, families, and communities. We can consider the ancient and modern challenges of technology. If you're interested in the 2024 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought, it'll be next June, but stay tuned, as they used to say, for the specific dates and our topic. With classes beginning tomorrow, we'll also go back to our usual after-dinner scholar interview format next week. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.